All right, welcome back to another episode. My name is Todd. And I am Ari. This is the how-to, where two guys show you how to do it between the two of them. So uh, to start it off today um, with our topic, uh, or before we start jumping into our topic, uh, Ari has some uh, some housekeeping to address on some recent comments. And uh, Ari, what, what do you got to share? So there was a bit of confusion. We were talking about people who sell on Facebook versus selling on a website. And there was a little bit of confusion as to whether or not we we're talking about open marketplaces. And I referred to, you know, the internet as, you know, an open market. But there is a distinct difference between like the SCA yard sale style list where it's just people selling things they have because they either made it or they, you know, it's the chain shirt that's going from sh uh, house to house to house. And then there's people who Facebook is the storefront. So I just wanted to clear that up since there was a little bit of confusion. We've gotten some feedback. There is a difference, and I was not in any way referring to those open marketplaces. Those are just like any other swap meet, swap, buy, swap, sell. Those those are completely outside of the scope of what we were referring to in the last episode about making versus buying. Yeah, and, and, and like anything else, there's risk in anything you do. Um, you know, if you purchase something off the internet from a, you always have, you know, fraud out there because people just can't live a normal life but it's it's like anything you do you got to do your research uh make communication with the vendor uh make sure they're you know try to do your best to find out they're a legitimate source and just just be safe when you go out there because there is a lot a lot of uh people out there and not just in medieval hobby stuff just just period you know stuff on the internet period that you got to watch out for and i think that was the biggest lesson learned right there um yep. but you know on my side there is a lot of good vendors out there that don't have an internet or a, a website and they, they use uh, Facebook and uh, other type of uh, um, social media places to sell their goods and uh, they are good vendors but like I said you got to kind of do your due diligence you got to do your research got to get that open dialogue and protect yourself you know make sure that the stuff's uh, insured uh, using PayPal and all that good stuff so I think skepticism it's skepticism you know, is yeah. key yeah so now now that we have everyone knowing whether or not they want to make or buy or where their tolerance is on that, we should probably start discussing exactly what it is that they are going to be making or buying. And that's going to be the basis of today's episode is a basic kit. Now, Todd and I talked about this a little bit and we kind of struggled to be able to do a basic kit that was a, a general episode because there's just so many different ways a basic kit can look based on time period. So we had to make a decision on what time period we were going to talk about, at least for this beginning episode. And the most comfortable place for the two of us was the era that we portray, which is you know the late 14th century, early 15th century, 100-year war time frame. So everything we talk about today is going to be focused on that narrow time frame. Now, a lot of these ideas will translate. We have some overview points that can be useful to other time periods, but I just want to caution everybody to remember that what we're talking about today is the late 14th century, early 15th century. And I know that Todd and I are both, both have English impressions. So a lot of what we do is steeped in knowledge about that. Not that we don't know about the Italian and the French and the German, but we're going to try and keep it as loose terms as possible without giving general data that's useless because it's too broad. Yeah, it's too big of a time period, and I don't want to go in uncharted territory, but I think, like Art was mentioning, there's there's stuff you can take away to your specific time period earlier or later that you can still use. Because, I mean, in the broad spectrum, I mean, the way people got dressed, you know, is an evolution process, and you can kind of go back and, and look at your sources and say, oh, okay, yeah, that's kind of the equivalent or the predecessor if you're an early time period. But some of those wide options that can be applied to anything – a lot of that boils down to status, uh, like we haven't talked about status enough now. Status is incredibly important, especially in, you know, as we've talked about in the in the medieval time period, because status had a much, a very important role in how you existed every day. So when we're talking about this as well, it's, it's hard to do broad strokes when in the same time period, uh, the upper class very well may have been wearing an entirely different set of clothing than the lower class because of the availability and the social pressures to have fashion and and cost and things. So we're going to we're going to go down and we're going to start at the bottom where it's accessible to everyone and what most people should start with, which is a common impression. Now, we want to put an asterisk on this in that <laughs> commoner does not mean 
dirt eating slave surf, right? You know, so, stuff you see in the movies, <laughs> mm. flea bottom uh, in the, you know, the, the red keep or whatever. Yeah. The, the true unwashed dirt digging, dirt, uh, ditch digging, you know, lowest class. Now, people like that clearly existed. Uh, the homeless, the those who didn't have a home, my, you know, like vagrant laborers. But that's not really what we're going to address. That's that may be the bottom floor, but that's not really what most people should seek to portray in the beginning. Yeah. What we're talking about is the the common man. When you think about that, you think about the the free tenant or the uh, serf who has a home, has some land, has a trade. They're not destitute. Obviously, they're not wealthy, but they're effectively the equivalent of the lower middle class, the working folk. And that's yeah. probably the most accessible ground floor for people to get into because then you can still look good. Like people didn't look terrible. You were talking a little bit earlier, Todd, about uh, working in the fields. And I think you made a great point. I'm hoping you share that again about uh, you see images of people working in the field and how that's not necessarily representative of what they would be wearing off the no. fields. Yeah, you'll see them. You'll see people. They'll they'll shed their clothes, and the you know due to temperature and, and they're just you know uh, to me it would make sense to remove your outer garments or have some type of cover garment, just like we, a mechanic would put coveralls um, today over his you know work clothes or whatever, just to 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 conserve and protect um, the stuff that he or she does have. So, and and when we talk about this commoner kit, you know I'm a big fan. Uh, I've kind of started growing into the commoner kit as I can't effectively you know portray a higher class portrayal and i think the commoner um throughout living history is 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 kind of a it's lacking you know there's not a lot of people that want to do it it's, some people think oh well that means you know oh I, i'm, I'm going to be you know a nothing or it's going to be simple and my kid's going to look ugly I, I think i think simple is is a, a lot louder when it's done properly and uh i think a commoner kit is just as um you know Good looking to the eye from the public or at an event if you. And there's this, a lot of. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say pretty much, you know, this is what Ari and I think. This is not going against. Uh, if you have a group that has standards already written out, um, that's great. You have something to go off of. But this is what Ari and I think you should have at a minimum um, when it comes to, you know, if you just want to go to an event. If you want to get to an event, you don't have a skill yet because um, that, that skill or craft that you start to try to portray off a, a working person or something might have a different outfit, um, due to that, that, uh, that job. But this is just to get you to an event. You look, you look, you know, as, as period as, as possible. Um, so you can kind of get, get and dive into the event. Yes. So a couple overarching points about common kit. There was more than just beige and Brown in the <laughs> lower classes. Everyone loved color. In fact, the medieval, commoner liked color to a garish point that it would it looks crazy because we're much more drab in today's society than than even the the common in medieval society and a thing that you'll find is that the cheaper clothing that were dyed with either inferior materials or didn't have the money for the same sort of mordants to to make the dye fast or they were used in the third or fourth bath have really light pale bright pastel colors Whereas the darker, deeper jewel tones were much more indicative of the higher class. Because if you could have a first bath of a color, you'd have this very deep, very uh, color fast mm -hmm. dye. But then the dye didn't just go away. They would put more clothes in it and more clothes in it. And you get progressively lighter shades. And so those lighter, brighter pastels are perfectly applicable to a commoner's outfit. So you can have lots of color. And lots of what we would consider conflicting color. Uh, many, many eras have a big fan of party color where, you know, the, the one leg is one color and the other leg is the other color. And things that, that clash to the modern eye were entirely within the scope of what you could wear as a medieval commoner. A big one, you know, for example, for our time period that we were talking about, turn of the century, 14th to the 15th, early times, blue was, was very popular at that time. Um, so, you know, the, the, the higher social class will have that darker blues. Um, and then as you go down, you know, like you said, in the, the different type of baths, what number it was. Um, but yeah, you got to, you got to watch out, you know, uh, do a little research, um, on it's, it's, it's crazy, huh? Right. You know, you think of colors, you know, you go to a store, you don't care what color the shirt is, as long as it's appealing to your eye. 
Um, but then it was, you know, there was laws and you had to be careful to not to overstep your bounds. Correct. When it comes to the fabric itself, you know, we're not just talking about the color, but we're talking about what it's made from. Uh, people tend to wear a lot of linen as their underlayer, and then their overlayer is wool. Now, wool can be hot, but depending on the weight you buy, it can it can also be comfortable. And a lot of times when you think of, oh, well, they, you know, they must have worn single color wool and you think about upper classes, the things that you'd want to avoid for your lower class impressions like silks and damascus and brocades had these, you know, beautiful colors and patterns. Medieval clothes, especially like middle class clothes, think of things like um, twills where you have that herringbone or wolf's tooth pattern or motley. Uh, there's lots of colors and patterns and uh, designs you can make with simple materials. If you have, you know, two two different colors of less expensive fabric or less expensive wool, and you're the way you tablet them together, you still have to you still have to loom them. So if you loom them more, you know, two equivalent cost colors instead of one, you come up with a pattern, and so. The medieval peasant did not have to wear solid colors. There's plenty of patterns when you come from twill weave and from uh, the motley, which is I don't know a lot about motley, but it, you can get a lot of interesting patterns out of it. And it's less expensive to make than some of the higher quality things. So you can have pattern, you can have texture without having to have velvet when you yeah. are a medieval commoner. So let's go into it. Let's just jump right into it. Um, mm -hmm. Let's start. We'll, we'll pretty much go from head to foot. You know, how, how, how do you think about that? Sounds good to me. So go for it. Let's just, let's do it. You got this. Start Starting at the head, obviously, you know, top to bottom. Most people wore something on their head, uh, regardless of their social class. And hearkening back to our statement about how you would work out in the field, you know, you may uncover your head while you're laboring, but when people went home and dressed, they would have something on their head. So you see the majority of people, you see the hood, that ubiquitous garment, the, the hood. And it's something that you would see. Um, there were hood styles for women. There were hood styles for men. They were generally made of wool, though sometimes of linen. What you would see women wear more often on their head would be things like veils and wimples and scarves. And Turbans, usually made out of linen. Uh, silk was something that would be accessible to the higher status. And if you were wearing a hood and you had your hood down, or instead of a hood, men would wear a variety of different hats. And this is where you start to get into find your favorite country <laughs> because yeah. they have regional styles. Yeah. Um, different hats meant different things, but you had hats made from felted wool. You had hats made from straw. And you had hats made from all sorts of different substances. Different furs could be blocked and felted or uh, made in different ways so that they could be used as a hat, floppy or stiff, brimmed, yeah. not brimmed. There's a lot of variation. So you have a lot of free expression on your head, uh, up to and including rolling your hood up and wearing it as the proto-chaperone that you see that actually physically becomes its own object later in time. So you're not... You're not slavishly bound to one head style. You have lots of options. And, and the only thing that kind of restricts you is, is your region. You know, um, different regions wore their head style different ways. Also, do a little research on the time, you know, your, your time period that you're doing and find out what the weather pattern was like. I mean, that dictated a lot as well. Um, sometimes in the Middle Ages, there was a uh, like a fake mini ice age, and then there's a, a long, a hotter summer. So you would you would see, you know, head headgear alternate based off the seasons and the temperature. The big one was like a straw hat. You know, you see that in a lot of labor, um, you know, um, miniatures that, that, that shows the, the, the people in the field actually, you know, wearing a straw. I mean, that goes all the way back to the Roman times. You can see documentation from that. And that's and that's a great working class, um, you know, headgear. But the, the hood, I mean, you see that, I mean, everywhere with soldiers, with commoners, with traveling merchants. I mean, it's just a, a different, um, you know, a different styles, obviously, but. You, the hood is that that universal style um, of head headgear. So when you come down to looking at headgear, I think you just kind of kind of do a little bit of research on what, what the person you're trying to portray or, or, or that that type of class. Um, what do you th you know what out of all the options, what what do you think they're doing and what why they would wear it? Um, right. The hood, obviously, in the winter, 
a straw hat covering their back near their neck and their head to keep them cool in the summer, you know, stuff like that. One thing to avoid, and this is really goes over everything, but talking about hats made me think of it. There were a lot of restrictions on the embellishments that you were allowed to wear based on social class. And the best way to avoid a social class faux pas by wearing the wrong type of metal or using the wrong type of embellishment is to, especially at the ground floor, your average working Joe, is to avoid things like uh, embroidery or large um, brooches on hats or feathers or jewels and beads you know there's lots of pearls. ways that you can embellish yeah. hats right and they you know hats by cockets would be beaded with pearls and garnets you'd have uh, brooches you'd have embroidery these are all things that are if you aspire to them are great ways to grow into a bigger kit but hats are a place where you know, you see someone's face first, you see their head first, and there's a great opportunity to have an incredible discontinuity between the social class you're trying to portray and what we actually look at if you put too much yeah. on your head. And that goes to a kind of a reenactors I see out there is the pilgrimage badges. Um, you'll see a hat with, you know, 20, 30 pilgrimage badges out there. Um, not, you know, it's been documented. They, they would put, you know, these little cheap badges to show where they, they went on pilgrimage. But I don't, I, I just, I don't see hats in sources that have, you know, four to five to, you know, these handfuls of these badges. I think people, you know, try to put too much on their head um, and that starts taking away from the actual sources. Mm-hmm. And you see that also on the, the shoulder parts of hoods. And I think that comes from, there are different organizations that use pins. It's also, there's a Renfair thing where there's, you know, pins with say funny things on them. So that's a, a modern emergence. We don't actually see a lot of pins like multiple pins being put on a hat uh, or on a hood. Now your hood stays on your shoulders and your shoulders are part of your body. So we're going to move on to your torso. Now, medieval folk dressed in layers, just like if you're wearing a suit nowadays, you're not wearing a suit jacket with nothing underneath it. You've got, you've got a shirt on and that shirt usually has obviously something underneath it. And they wore something underneath it for the same reason that you don't wear your nice suit shirts your Oxford's against your skin because, you know, your armpits and your sides and your belly, those are places where you tend to create more dirt and uh, soil, and it makes it easier to clean a base layer if it's made out of something easier to clean. So you see everyone generally has a base layer of linen. You know, you talk about like a an undershirt for men or a chemise for women, and this is very rarely worn alone, except when you see laborers will wear them, they'll strip down to just their shirt or they'll strip down to, um, you know, no shirt on at all. But you think about it, if you're out there on a construction site and you see a guy in his, um, you know, in his tank top, it's not, you don't expect him to then, that's not how he dresses or probably, hopefully not. That's not, (laughs) when you see someone (laughs) dressed in just a wife beater style tank top, that, that has a very different impression than someone who's wearing even just like a Carhartt or tractor supply shirt over the top of a t-shirt. I mean, good examples. I mean, soldiers, I mean, like if they're out there digging or they're doing labor on a vehicle or something, you blouse um, down. Yeah. They blast down. They take off their, their actual blouse and they go to their under their shirt, their, their, their t-shirt and they work in that. And then when they're done or walk away, they put their, their blouse on because you don't want to get the oil grease on it because Right. You know, so it's it's that same thought process. But over this base layer, you would have your actual main shirt or what we would think of like your shirt is your primary layer. What you'd have in the late 14th, early 15th century is you would have a tunic or coder D style garment. And depending on your level of, you know, progressive fashion and how much you could spend, you would have either a solid like gown style tunic that would go maybe knit, uh, knee to to hip length, or you'd have a coder D, which you know they would they could button in different patterns, they could lace in different patterns, and then if it was cold, or if you were trying to dress better, you could put on another layer such as um, a, a bigger coat. A woman would wear dresses, overdresses and kirtles and fashion or warmth on top of those could be surcoats and gowns. Yeah. And you one thing we see the G63 gown that they found, yeah. uh, they, they, you wear that over um, your coat already or your, uh, your tunic. 
Correct. So there's lots of layers. So instead of you see a lot of cloaks, but you don't see a lot of cloaks being, you know, when people are, are stationary, cloaks work really well. Um, but cloaks seem to be primarily more for uh, fashion and for heavy weather. They're like your trench coat. But if you're cold, you're more likely to put on a gown or a coat on top of your coater D or your tunic. So your working layer is a, a linen shirt or linen chemise. Your your primary layer is your tunic, coater D or gown or kirtle for a woman. And then you could layer on top of that. And then a cloak would be sort of the last thing you would put on if you really needed to keep the weather off of you. Yeah. Or and for one, fashion. One thing, well, one thing difficult too at the time period that we're doing is the transition period. We're going from the late 14th to the early 15th. There's a lot. There's a lot of transitioning. There's a lot of uh, change in style at that time, and, and it's kind of hard. You know, you're still got the the 14th century look kind of going in, but you you got this new trend. Um, another another garment would be like the civil doublet, kind of based off the uh, arming doublet or a uh, um, a military type um, uh, piece of clothing, and the doublet comes in to where you know, replaces that tunic. It's tighter. It's tighter fitting than a loose fitting uh, tunic. And that you start to see that now. That that might be a little bit more of a, a higher status um, gown. Right. Uh, but you do you do see it in like you know merchantmen and and, and things of that nature too. True. So, I mean, because the more fitting it is, the more expensive it was to make. Same as today. To, the more yeah. fitted a garment, the more expensive it is. So when you're even into the early 15th century. Uh, you see that coterie or that tunic remain for quite a long time, especially in the lower classes, as people were using what was most comfortable, most affordable, and fashion tended to move quicker the more the more money you had to spend on it. And you know, speaking again, saying that we're we're in our we're we're doing an English impression. You know, you gotta think. Our, uh, Italy was kind of like the fashion empire, kind of still like today. Um, you have fashion coming in from Germany, and it took a while to get to to England. So, you know, starting out, you know, things they always made fun of the English because they're out, you know, they're always outdated in their fashion, um, you know, sources and stuff like that. So, um, but like you said, it it took time for fashion to kind of catch up across the continent and into the uh, you know the Isle of England. Uh, but what do you think about? I mean, from the base wear to your your uh, what you what's your coat over it? I mean, there's a there's a running style. I mean, it's simple. It's somewhat loose fitting, uh, not too tailored, not too embellished. You know, you don't have all these decorations and, and jewelry and stuff. I mean, why is that? Well, there's an economic incentive, and also you have a social incentive for there to be a, a sharp visual divide between the high and the low classes. And so, even though you you might be able to push things up fashion-wise a little bit if you're on the continent, these simpler styles still persisted for a very long time, even in the more progressive areas or even as time went on, simply because it served society to have this visual distinction. And when we're doing impressions, it serves us when we're in a group setting to be able to demonstrate that clear divide uh, as much as possible. So keeping things a little more archetypical it can actually be a teaching tool no so we got we got the kind of idea of what simple garments to wear um now fitting uh medieval clothing does not wear the same way as as modern clothing and it takes a while to get used to i mean honest to be honest um we're used to loose fitting clothes uh you know our hemline our, our, our hip line being a little lower um kind of more of on our hips for our pants um shirts being loose around our neck um so when you look at Medieval style clothing and, and getting a proper fit, because if it's not fitted properly or, or created properly to the medieval measurement style, you start to lose that authenticity. True. I, I found the most the most useful comparison I've been able to make to try and get this point across in that the clothes you wear for your medieval outfit is not going to follow the same aesthetic lines that your modern clothes do, is look at the comparison between what is the the male the preferred male form in like 80s movies versus modern day you look at you know the the incredibly oversized arnold schwarzenegger biceps of 80s action movies versus you know nowadays you see more of the you know 
Brad Pitt Fight Club perfect 20 pack abdominals. <laughs> so you see these shifting changes in, in how the silhouette is supposed to be. And in the medieval era, you see that there's this, what they call the pigeon breast silhouette is very popular where it's, it's, you know, the, the puffed up chest, the, the narrow waist. And, um, so you're going to have things fit. They're going to feel different and you're going to have a different silhouette if it's tailored correctly. Even the non-tailored garments tend to try and emulate uh, this look more than they do the the way you'd you'd fit your clothes yeah. nowadays. Just give me a warning. So when you put on when you order a gown or, or, or a piece of garb and you receive it in the mail and you get very excited to turn it, put it on, and it's either super tight or uh, you know it, it it pushes a little in little different places than your modern clothing. I mean. It's not. It's not wrong. So it's just. Especially if you got it from a competent tailor, it's very possible that it fits the way it should, even if you're not used yeah. to that. Yeah. Now, I I gotta you know and B when you do this, you have to be honest with your measurements. You can't you know take a couple inches off your your midsection because you you know you're trying. Oh, I'm gonna lose weight in four months or you know or you work out and you gain weight uh, in mass. You you gotta understand that it, it if it's a tailored fit or a close fitting garb, um, you 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 can quickly out outsize or outgrow it. So. You definitely have to be be honest with yourself when you when you go ahead and get you know period clothing uh, made for you. Be honest with yourself and don't trust the sizing from your clothing department store. So yeah. a 36 waist from in a pair of pants at Walmart does not necessarily mean that you have a 36 inch measurement on your waist in the spot that they need to tailor a garment. And it probably means because most of these sizes are vanity sizes, the likelihood is incredibly low that you actually are 36 inches around. So don't take your pants and be like, well, I've got a, I, I wear 38, 34. That's my, uh, that's my pants size. So obviously these are the, you know, I can throw in inseam 34 and, and waist size 38 and get by that's, you have to take physical measurements of your body. Yep. And, and, and if you, go to, to like a modern day seamstress that person might not know um the exact measurements for a medieval outfit so it, books like we talked before about uh the the medieval uh tailor assistant or the tailor assistant book that we talked about that shows you uh where to take the measurements for that you know the the, the garb that you you're going to design so just just fair warning putting that out there that's that's kind of a, that's a to me that's important because you might get something and it won't fit you because you didn't do the, the proper measurements uh, but right. always get with your your person creating your your gown and and then be be honest with with them and and on it. especially if you're dealing with somebody in Europe um you have to trans you have to convert um so just put yeah, it I hope back. you're comfortable with centimeters yeah but this was a really good spot to bring that up because it's like the shoulders and the belly are the places where people get themselves in the most trouble yeah. so on the body garments is where people really have strife when they're trying to get things especially if they're trying to get things custom made off the rack stuff. Though it may or may, depending on the the store you're buying from, may or may not have the best period aesthetic. Getting off the rack stuff, if you follow, if they say, okay, an extra large in our medieval tunic means that you should fit this chest and this waist and this shoulder measurement, you can be, you can probably fit into that. Though most off the rack stuff requires a little more tailoring, but that's mm-hmm. goes back to the idea that most clothes were made to the person, even the lower class would make have clothes made for them. There wasn't a huge department store culture. So you you have to take a little bit of leeway with that. That goes back to the uh, the buy or make right there. There's an advantage right. of making because you're actually taking your actual measurements. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we got our we got our body. We right? got our body. So now so we're going on to our legs because we yep. don't want to be walking around without a base layer on our bottom sides, <laughs> at least not, not public. Not socially accepted here today. Right. So what you have as your sort of, quote, underwear, even though in depending on your outfit, sometimes it's visible, you have a pair of what are called braids. And they are everything from like knee length boxers of linen all the way up to kind of briefs mm-hmm. length. And that length of your braids is going to depend strongly on what kind of hosing you're going to wear over the top of it. So in this time, the easiest and the most common things for the lower classes to wear were what are called chosses, and they are two separate garments, and you'll, you'll see them there. Their legs, they're like a pair of pants without the middle, and they have like a point, a long taper that goes up 
and ties to the actual braze up in the front. Now, they're the, they require a fair amount of tailoring because they're meant to fit to your legs. But when it comes to trying to make clothes fit around the mobile joint of your hips and your backside and your waist, they require the least amount of work. So they were persistent and popular until block patterning came in much later. All, a lot of times the hosen would have feet on them or a stirrup to hold them down inside your shoes. And even though they had dresses on, women would still wear like stockings that would garter and tie at the knee. They didn't necessarily go all the way up to the hip because they didn't need to, but they would still wear something on their legs to protect the bottom of their feet and or the bottom of their legs and their ankles from where their legs could be exposed and draft from the skirts. If you are, you know, say, like we we're talking about before, on the continent or you know, you have a commoner impression that's a little more progressive, you can start to get things like split hose or even joined hose. Now, joined hose are the reason that you have those brief style braids because they effectively were a pair of tights and they had a, a piece in the in the front that would cover the groin and they would cover the entire backside. Split hose, however, they tended to require a foundational garment that was like a, a reminiscent of the, the armored Lendenier or a full pourpoint a doublet that was worn underneath the mm -hmm. main layer but over the top of the linen layer to help suspend because there are extra points in the back of split hose because split hose would wrap around the outside of the hips, but they didn't have, they weren't joined in the middle. They were crotchless effectively. So they need to be held up at multiple points along the waist, which is why going back to, if you're trying to get a good authentic looking commoner kit at sort of the entry level, chosses require the least amount of supplemental accessories because you can tie chosses directly to the braze. So if you get a pair of braze and a pair of chosses, you're done. If you have split yeah. hose, then you need a little more foundation, a little more work. And even even joined hose work better since the waistline is in, is very low compared to pants. Uh, they work a lot better when they have some sort of suspension. And you see a lot of artwork where people have taken off their, you know, they're working. So they've taken off their main layer, but they've got this, this sort of vest looking garment that I'm familiar with it called a poor point. I'm certain that there's other terms for it. But when yeah. I say the, the word poor point, I'm thinking of that kind of vest looking thing that the, the legs of even joined hose where you can see that they're, they're a full garment around the crotch and the backside are actually tied to it. So yeah. you'll see a lot of that. And another thing when talking about uh, the crotch area, women would wear a pair of braids that was distinctly crotchless so that they would have access to what they needed without having to pull everything down. Well, and they were able to wear this garment because they had the skirts from their dresses over the top. So they weren't exposing themselves. And so you had joined braids on the spot where you'd have boxers or briefs for men, and then you'd have split braids for women. And women tended to wear stockings up to the knee. Men had leggings that went all the way up to the hip. Yeah. So one thing you got to be careful, though, uh, to avoid the modern-day reenactments is you, some people might, but the normal normal people around the world do not walk around and show their undergarments. It's just no one wants to see that. It's 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 a you know a social you know custom that we all kind of adhere to. Neither did they. Um, and you see a lot of of, of reenactors having their braids you know falling out of their um, chosses, or their chosses don't go up high enough, or their their their. Uh, outer garment does not go down low enough to cover the chosses. So you kind of get this diaper um, type look and you kind of want to avoid that. Um, Cause you, when you see the, the sources, the period sources, you don't really, you might see a little, um, but for the most part it's covered. So you got to be careful. So when you bend over, you might see a little bit more on your, of your braids, but you want to avoid where the braids are falling out of your chosses. Um, it, and in their defense, a lot of that is actually a fit issue, which is sort of yeah. outside the scope of this episode. Some of that is not necessarily intentional. Um, some of it is when it gets hot, 
people will roll down their chosses yeah, and, they would and garter do them that, yeah. at the knee. But then, you, again, you see that happening a lot like on campaign and in work fields. You don't necessarily see that a lot just milling around with in social company. And this idea of showing your underwear, you'll see it a little bit, especially in progressive fashion when you're wearing shorter coder Ds and split hose. But you rarely ever see the – if you're wearing chosses – it's very rare to see a garment that is short enough to show that off. You generally start to see, you peek at the underwear in this, where the split hose start to come in and the, the coder D start to creep up. And it's a, it's a lot, it, it's a lot like um, the Lanschknecht slicing their clothing to show off their underclothes or letting your pants sag and your underwear show out. It's, it's a distinct fashion choice, but j the general conservative fashion, it does not show your underclothes. Yeah, so one one example like personal is when I bought some chasses, um, linen ones, and I, I did not, they weren't they weren't they were off the shelf. Um, I did I did measure my inseam my my overall length, um, but I still again was off, and so when I put them on they fit, um, but the 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 cut around my inner thigh up to behind my my uh, that goes up to my hip like through my my cr uh, crotch was was too low and then the the the, the braids that i had were down to about uh, just above my knee so what i had the problem was was every time i get up or move around i felt like my my braids were always falling out i had to re-tuck them in no matter how much i tried they would always just fall out so i mean it's a lesson learned so um ensure that you'll see on some of the websites like the longer braids that actually go down your knees that helps with that problem because they, they're longer and they go down further but just kind of look out for that. That's like you said, it's a sizing issue. Again, um, getting it tailored or uh, you know made for you. But I do agree, trosses and braids uh, for for a late 14th century, early 15th century impression uh, commoner um, looks you know looks great, especially wool um, trosses and stuff. And you do see the example of them rolling them down um, in the fields and stuff. So yeah, I mean it's but great great starter leg leg wear. When you're wearing them, they're, you're wearing your pants, and the last thing you want is the wind and the weather to be consistently getting into your boxers and you don't want these exposed areas for rain and water and wind to, yeah. to tease out your linen undergarment. Uh, that doesn't sound comfortable. Well, why would they wear well, You wouldn't wear didn't. something that hinders you. You know right. what I mean? They wouldn't do this. They would do the same thing. So obviously yeah. if it, if it's if you failing you, it, it's not right. Yeah. Pe people fought wars. They work the fields. They manage their business wearing these outfits. If, if we can't go to and from an event comfortably and do the things that we need to to, to get through an, an, a weekend in these clothes, then we need to address our fit and cut because it's impossible for society to have advanced if people were incapable of moving around in the clothing that we see them wearing in visual depiction. Yeah. Um, now feet, walking yep. around. Uh, this is important. Shoes. <laughs> shoes. See, and shoes are one of those hard things because shoes are one of the easiest ways to pull an entire impression out of that historic feel and you know, slapping a pair of brown flats on or using a pair of um, no no lace boots that you kind of cut the fabricy part off the and the pull tab off the top of they don't you have to have medieval looking shoes now we already talked about should you buy them should you make them but generally what you find is this turnstile shoes they were tied with leather for both sides men and women and they were typically about ankle high. They were either like cut like a sneaker or they came up a little bit. But when you start seeing calf and knee high boots, those are when you see people who are of more means because it requires more cut, more material, leather. And there was color to leather. You can make leather of different colors, but you also see a lot of you know, brown. You don't see a lot of black. Black shoes are a little harder to find until a lot later uh, period and you want to see conservative shoes that you can move around in you don't need those massive long tipped poulain krakow looking shoes because those were you know, consistently worn with people a in the later period you know, you're talking about the late 1400s but they're also consistently worn with higher status garments in situations like milling about a courtyard or attending court in a way that you didn't have to actually walk with them particularly well. If you are yeah. going to be representing a person who can operate around the around town, around 
going to and from their home in the field and, the, and attending town for a market, you're going to see shoes that you can walk in. They'll have some point to them, but they'll generally be ankle high, made of leather and a turnstile. You got to think practicality, you know, shoes that are going to be practical for the person um, of that occupation that you're trying to portray or that, that, that lifestyle. Um, you do see, you know, see a lot of uh, modern day reenactments with the oversized boots that go up to the knee. Um, you, 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 as a commoner, you kind of want to avoid that stuff. Uh, this, this is where, you know, making a lot of people make their own turn shoes. Uh, turn shoes were a, a product that in the middle ages, that especially our time period, they wore and they went through multiple pairs through a year. You know, it wasn't a one pair of shoes is going to get them through the whole year. No, they would, they, they would have to, you know, constantly, you know, um, buy new pairs of shoes. And you, you see that in, in some sources, um, but, but yeah, it was, it was leather. You're walking around leather, the sole would wear through and they would have to go purchase another pair. Um, but it's definitely, these have to work because this is your feet and you're going to be standing on your feet at an event. Um, and again, they're not modern day shoes. They're not cushioned, um, the same. Uh, so depending on what type of, of shoe you get, but you will definitely feel the difference when you go from your modern shoes to your period shoes. Now you can put inside soles, you can put cushioning in there to help you, uh, you know, get some cushioning for your feet. But when it comes to, to the mediable, you know, shoe, footwear is again, you're going to feel a, a definite difference on it and support, you know, of your feet. It's effectively like walking around barefoot, which is not impossible, but it requires, yeah, I, I have had some painful calves when I'm not used to walking around barefoot for a whole weekend. And since they're single layer of leather, we, we try, I'm for a commoner, I try and discourage too much in the way of accessories, but one of those accessories that really will be worth its weight of gold is a set of patents, which are sort of wooden clog type things. They're platforms of wood with a hinge sometimes that strap onto your shoes and they will, Mm -hmm. They will help stop you soaking up water through the leather because eventually, even if you treat it leather, the water will get through even just the seams. And, they, and if they you were wearing a pair of, they weren't necessarily a, a higher class. I think I think this no. is a common item. Yeah, definitely a common right. item. My my discouragement for too many accessories is just to make sure that the entry level outfit is yeah, financially yeah, yeah. accessible. But these are one of those accessories that you will. It's definitely worth the cash to have a pair of patents if you're going to go anywhere that's soggy, especially if you have authentic footed hosen or stirruped hosen, and then the water gets into your shoe and then it soaks into the wool or the fabric of your uh, the the bottom of your hosen. So your socks. Now you've got wet socks and you've got wet shoes, and that's no one. I I've said it before that perhaps the medieval person had a higher tolerance or more accepting of just general being damp but i don't have that general acceptance of being damp and i find it incredibly uncomfortable i hate having wet feet and you will be happy if you get some patents is especially if you have leather shoes and footed hosen because it'll save you a whole lot of dampness so one one example is after talking to uh the the uh, merchant that i bought shoes from is he told me about cork shoes or winter shoes they were they're basically necessity a winter shoe um has a layer insole layer of uh cork between leather to give you that insulation and those are a big big change for going from just straight leather that gets a little more comfort and i have you know they're they're great he sent me documentation showing me um and it's a you know but there's also there's plenty of ways to cushion your shoes without you know compromising the the the, uh the period integrity there but definitely uh fitted to your feet um you know, when purchasing shoes from a foreign vendor, again, you're going through the size change. So if you're going to go to, uh, you know, calculate from a, you know, U.S. or Canadian or something to the European size, give yourself a couple, a, a half a half a size up just for that, that, uh, you know, the margin of error. That's what, that's one thing I learned um, buying footwear overseas. So And definitely get your hosen first, especially if you plan on wearing mm-hmm. footed hosen, because if you have a thick fold wool hosen, footed hosen it can actually change by almost a full size depending on how much excess fabric is in there i've i've had the problem where i couldn't put a shoe on because i measured it in socks and not in my hosen and i went and you have to if you're going to have footed hosen you have to make sure that you measure your shoe to the hosen not to just your feet in wearing athletic socks because they're so much thinner yeah and 
so we got our we got our basic guard package. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're we're dressed from head to toe now. Let's get into the things where we kind of lose control because um, <laughs> we want all the cool stuff, and that's it, that's accessories. And this is the accessories is where those impulse buy problems happen because an impulse buy of a brocade doublet is not so much an impulse buy because you're spending hundreds of dollars on a single garment. But when you're looking at the difference between a $30 belt or a $60 belt, it's easy to overextend the reach of your outfit. So when you're when you think about the basic accessories that a medieval commoner would be wearing, you they generally be wearing a belt of some sort and because of both cost and or prohibitions based on sumptuary law or cultural pressures, you generally would have an unadorned belt made of either leather or tablet woven uh, linen or wool. And once you start getting into fancy brocaded silk tablet weaving, that's when you're talking about higher class belts. And they're, they're held together with a buckle, with a pin, it could be cast brass, it could be forged iron, may or may not have a shape, but it is not a ring that you then tie <laughs> okay. your belt through. That's wow. that is entirely non-existent in the historical record. Ring belts are yeah. not a thing. You're going to see a lot of vendors out there, uh, you know, and, and just look for the, the the lower cost belts that you know of your time period. Uh, lower factors one, and they have you know commoner belts, nothing fancy, still look great. I mean, still good looking belts with you know. Um, custom uh, finishings, uh, brass finishings and stuff, but um, you're not going to see a commoner with a plaque belt. It's something no. a, you know, a knight would wear. Um, you wouldn't see... Studded with fancy st- mounts. All or, these studs, yeah. You yeah. Keep it simple. A belt should cost you no more than... You know, Todd's workshop, when, uh, when they sold belts, belts were about $25, $30. You know, you're, you're paying for the the uh, the hardware necessary, not the leather. So, and they come, you know, in, in, in standard colors. Um, so just nothing, nothing too crazy. And, and like I said, simple sometimes is a lot. So, yes. And what you, you know, people have to carry their stuff. And you'll notice that in this whole list of outfit that we talked about, none of it includes pockets. So you have to carry your pocket. And generally, what would that be is either a belt pouch or some sort of bag. Not everyone had a pouch on them at all times because a pouch required a fair amount of leather or when you're looking at like women's purses their alms purses tended to start you know there was an expectation that they would be made of you know brocaded fabric even if it was cast off uh cast off pieces that could be made into small pouches what you if you need to carry your things and you don't necessarily want a pouch canvas sacks forage bags or belt pouches are all accessible ways of carrying around the things you need to carry. Uh, we we have a modern sense that you know everyone has a wallet on them, or the back of their phone case has all their IDs and their cards and their things. We have we fill up all of our pockets with stuff. You know, you didn't necessarily unless you were traveling, like if you were actually like international travel and you needed your your travel papers and things like that. Not everyone carried everything they needed with them because not a, a lot of people left where they lived very often you know if you were working on your farm and you needed something you know what you needed was at the house that's on your property and so the amount of time that we spend away from the things we need access to is higher so we have a higher modern expectation that we have to be able to carry all of our stuff so it is perfectly acceptable to wear this outfit we described and a belt with no bag no pouch Leave your the stuff you need if you don't necessarily have to have your money on you or your ID on you locked up in the car, um, and you tuck your key, your car key on you somewhere or have somebody else hold it for you. It's your outfit will look perfectly complete without it. Though a sack or a forage bag or a belt pouch is a perfectly acceptable addition as long as that belt pouch isn't covered in elaborate buckles, and straps, yeah. and brass fittings, and um, not every medieval person carried a dagger at all times you know there was there was an expectation to carry or to own a sword and if you're traveling through the woods where it's dangerous you'd have you'd be armed but the average day-to-day person especially even if you're thinking about like the city dweller you know in places like london where there were times in which open carrying of weapons was banned you don't have to have a dagger dangling behind your pouch on your belt you can Commoners definitely wore it that way, but it's not a requirement. Entry level, you can forego some of those things and still have a very authentic looking person who was just doing their day-to-day jobs. You know, they're an ostler in the stables, doesn't necessarily need a dagger and a pouch. No. 
and what what you what you will talk about you know coming up here is uh when we say dagger you see people think of a fighting weapon instead of a daily utility tool um you know so um but then again so if you you're talking about like your your pocket knife if you have mm-hmm. a forge bag that you carry your things in you were able to throw your knife in there the folding knives existed all the way back to to roman times so if you needed just a utility knife a utility knife and it's scabbard or folded up in a bag is just as useful since it doesn't need to be immediately deployed from your belt because it's not a self-defense tool. Yeah. And it goes so in these that category of want and need, you know, you yeah. uh, do you really need it? No. Uh, but most people want, you know, want it. Everyone loves a knife. So, um, yeah. so we got, we got our pouch, we got our belt. Mm-hmm. What other accessories um, do we, you know, do we, we, do we kind of need to help finish off that look? Well, women need to have garters. Now that can be just pieces of yarn, but women wore stockings that were held up at the knee by garters. Men had their chosses or their hosen pointed to their waist, but there was also a, an aesthetic that that calf and that leg shape, I mean, everything was closely tailored. You didn't want bagginess. So men could be wearing garters. Now, the higher class would wear one garter on one side as a symbol of, wow, my clothes are so fitted that I don't even need to wear these, but I'm going to show it off because this one's expensive. But just a, a piece of tablet woven uh, wool garter um, or a, a piece of, of you know cordage or a leather. small leather garter yeah. can be used to help hold up or help shape the hosen. That's, but that's something that women It keeps it tight on your, your ankles. Don't. Yeah, it keeps the tiny ankles and your lower legs, and it keeps the excess up on top um, for for movement, bending over. So pretty much, it's it's utility, not necessarily fashion for the everyday person. And at this point, as far as I'm concerned, a entry level commoner impression no longer needs anything besides this. This is really the the ground floor as yeah. far as I'm yeah. concerned. I don't know if you have anything that you think that should no, be included. I, I think that that will get you into the door. Um, obviously, quality and authenticity is. Is, is very important when it comes to this. Um, and those we, also depend a lot on where your impression comes from and your exact time period in this. We still have a yeah. fairly loose area we're talking about here, and you can dial this down a little more. So, what, you know, we got the, the, the base kit. Now everyone sees these veteran living history, you know, uh, you know, people with all this extra stuff, tents right. and, and kitchens and armor and weapons and, 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 and tables and all this other stuff. And that really gets into the want category, not the Absolutely. need, but the want. And you, this is the stuff that you don't necessarily need right away. This is, this is the stuff. Once you do find out, you do like the hobby, uh, you do want to stay in and you really want to get involved. This is where, again, having a group or having a good source or a mentor to help guide you with proper stuff, um, for that time period. And this, the material culture, yeah. Um, you know, all this stuff. So do we need swords? Do we need it? it, it, it you know, not right away. I don't think right it really, away. it uh, definitely depends on, on what you're trying to present. But if, if you're not trying to present a soldier in a campaign, like if you're not doing a, the, the men at Agincourt, you don't need armor. The average person didn't wear their sword every day. They had a job to do, and that job wasn't slinging a sword around. They wore it on travel, and sure, they were required by law to maintain one. But just because your impression had to have things at home doesn't mean to get your foot in the door, you have to own them. If your impression is of a farmer, you don't have to own a shovel and carry it around or put it in the, you know, lean it up against the wall every time you go somewhere to prove that you have a shovel. You also don't need to have your kitchen table at home and you don't need to have a chest and a bed and you don't have to own an actual medieval cottage to represent a medieval cottage. (laughs) And so hard to build every event. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. That's a, I don't have a trailer that big. So you, what you carry on your person doesn't require your, the, the vial of ink if you're a merchant for writing papers or your papers, your scrivener's desk at all. It doesn't require any of those things except for what you were carrying on your person. Those are things you can get as you improve your impression, especially if you're going to go to events where you can show those impressions off. If you're never going to go to a camping event and you're going to do impressions at rent fairs, you're going to do impressions at schools, you're going to be doing impressions at events like 
you live in Europe and you can do events at castles and you stay in the castle barracks. You may never actually need a tent or camp furniture or a place to cook outside. And if you're never going to do a martial impression, even if your average tenant farmer male English subject was supposed to have a sword and was capable of using a bow and was required to practice on Sundays, that doesn't mean if you're never going to demonstrate those things that you have to buy those things. Not, not right away. Yeah, you're right. You just, it's, these are things, you know, you get to an event, you find what you, you know, you might get into it. like, Oh, I want to do something with leather. You know? And then you realize, no, I want to do something with woodworking or I want to do a martial aspect. You, you never know until you get up there and do it. You know, you don't, you don't have to come with a skill right away. If you're, you're new, you go, go to an event with, with the, a group or go to a grant as an individual, um, find you know there's obviously gonna be groups at an event you can kind of start getting into with them but at the minimum just to to attend an event and with an historical you know uh impression that that, you don't need all that stuff you don't need fancy anything um what we talked about from you know about what to buy head to toe you're right that's where we stop you know that's where you can stop and 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 get a feel for it first and then you can start kind of choosing your path on where you want to go now, assuming you don't have access to a group, you don't have access to some loner gear, you don't have someone that has extra casts off that you can wear to assemble something, and you were just going to start with nothing, pure brass tacks, buy it, make it, buy some of it, make some of it, even acquiring the fabrics and things, what you can expect to pay, like back of envelope, to get into an impression and do it authentically, make sure you have proper shoes, clothes of reasonable medieval aesthetic cut and fit, appropriate fabrics. If you want to hit those points of authenticity and you want to get in at the ground floor with a very basic commoner impression, you should anticipate spending between about $250 and $500. And obviously the the higher end means that you're spending more on either fabrics or you're making less of it. The lower end means you're probably going to be making more of it, but there's still an initial upkeep cost for the materials, especially when you want to get authentic materials, wool is much more expensive than polyester. And so it requires yardage of certain things and you're going to have. So when you're looking, if you're looking at getting into this or you're looking at uh, creating a commoner impression in, in this timeline, say you, you are, you know, a cru- you have a crusader kit now, but everything is, you know, grandpa's clothes and you want to have a hundred years war common impression just to get in the door at a hundred year war event. I would aim at the $250 to $500 mark is what you should expect to put down to be able to get this basic level kit going, which is really the the entry level into – it was a fantastic amount of money for a entry-level hobby where there are people who wear individual garments of clothing that are more expensive than this entire outfit. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean that's a fair fair uh, you know assessment of the price, no more than $500 depending on the quality. But you all remember, you always get what you pay for. So if you go and buy a lower quality, you know, outfit, you, you get what you pay for in the hobby. But, you know, this is, again, exactly what we're talking about is the first time, you know, getting in, having a decent, decent setup, I don't think back. So um, you don't have to spend thousands of dollars right off the, 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 the alco of it, you know. Correct. And uh, yeah, as you said, you could beat that price. I'm certain you could come in under the $250 mark if if you made absolutely every last stitch of what you have and you shopped around really hard for all of the materials, or if you went to less reputable dealers and got things that were cut, you know, modern, modern cut of medievalish looking clothes, there's always ways to reduce the cost. But you also, we have this expectation that we're going to be presenting people with a really good, authentic, impression of whatever time period we're putting forward and we we owe it to whomever we're working with if that's the public or if that's other living history and reenactment enthusiasts we kind of owe it to ourselves to to put a little more skin in the game to bring the the level of presentation up to a nice minimum standard we want to be a cut above you know a a renaissance pleasure fair where the point isn't the clothes the clothes are are the point of the party. We yeah. want we want to actually have some sort of sense of of authority and authenticity, which requires a little a little bigger investment. Yep. So I mean, there you go in a kind of a 
uh, 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 Ari and Todd kind of point of view of, of what we think a basic kit should be assembled of um, to get you in the door of, you know, historical living history for medieval living history. Um, if you if you have some advice or you have another idea or, uh, you know, some some examples, please put send us a message on our Facebook. Uh, one of us will answer it. We, we'd love to hear from you guys. You know, there's been great feedback coming in um, almost after every episode. We have someone kind of give us their take on it. And, you know, it's it's obviously different from what Ari and I think. We're not the say all be all. We're just kind of trying to give you our point of view to help you guys um, get on, on a path that, you know, takes you down to an exciting hobby. So please um, keep keep up with the feedback. Uh, we appreciate it. So Ari, you have any closing, th- closing thoughts? Nope. Looking forward to keep the conversation going on Facebook. I appreciate your guys' support. Make sure that if you haven't liked the Facebook page or you haven't subscribed to it on Anchor, do one or the others so that you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And I can't wait to get you the next one. All right. Hopefully we uh, we talk about next one. Uh, I think we're going to do how to start a group if you don't have one in the local area. So uh, we'll look forward to that. So again, see you guys in the next one. Mm-hmm.